0: And this is a nuclear hot seat special, the Porter Ranch Radioactivity Connection. Porter Ranch, nestled in the foothills above the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, is an upscale community of million-dollar homes that was built atop the Southern California Gas Company's natural gas storage facility in Aliso Canyon, something that was obviously not fully explained in the real estate agreements. Since at least October 23rd of 2015, a rupture in an underground pipe has invisibly been pumping vast quantities of methane gas into the environment at a rate of up to 100,000 pounds per hour, adding what is believed to be 25% to the state's daily methane output. California has declared a state of emergency, and famed environmental rights attorney Aaron Brockovich has declared this the worst environmental disaster since the BP oil spill. She obviously didn't consider Fukushima in that equation. Be that as it may, why is nuclear hot seat talking about a gas leak? Because in the list of many additional emissions tacked onto any mention of the methane leak, is the consistent reference to radon gas, the radioactive decay product of radium. Here's where it gets personal. I live less than 20 miles away from Porter Ranch. I was at Three Mile Island when it happened, and I have a lot of unanswered questions about this radon risk. So, I did what I always do. I started calling up the best experts that I knew, and this is how the show came to be. We start with Kevin Camps. He is the nuclear waste watchdog, some might say bulldog, for Beyond Nuclear. He is also Tom Hartman's favorite nuclear commentator and one of mine. Kevin Camps, always a pleasure to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby, for having me. I'm following the ongoing gas leak at Porter Ranch here in Southern California, not least of my reasons being that it is within 20 miles of my home. And the reporting down here has focused on the methane leak. Now we're starting to hear about radon gas either being released in the mix or some are trying to downgrade it, saying, well, it will only be possibly released during the remediation when they have the other well going. What is your understanding of what the situation could be there at this time?
2: Uh, My understanding is that fossil fuel in the ground has uranium and its radioactive decay products in it, including radon. So when you extract fossil fuels, be it oil or coal or natural gas, they will have things like radon embedded in them. And when you have leaks of the fossil fuel, like methane gas, into the atmosphere, there will be a leakage of radon gas alongside it. And even when you burn the fossil fuels in an electricity production facility, for example, with natural gas, you're not transforming that radioactivity into something harmless. It simply passes through that incineration process and out the stacks into the atmosphere. So the toxic and or radioactivity hazards associated with the radioactive constituents embedded in the fossil fuels are... Part and parcel, a part of that fossil fuel chain that's being uh, utilized with consequent health and environmental damage downwind and downstream, depending on the form of the radioactivity.
0: The fact that this leak is coming from a storage facility, which has already gone through whatever purification process there might be from the gas company, would that in any way impact the existence of radon gas within the mix?
2: Well, I'm not an expert on all this, but I would have to say uh, from my experience in the anti nuclear movement that filters often don't do the job. And so I do believe that there's going to be radon in that methane fuel supply that is simply leaking out of this breach in this storage facility. And, you know, the hazards of radon are quite significant. All you have to do is ask survivors of the Navajo uranium miners in the Southwest who died in really horrific numbers from their exposure to radon in the underground uranium mines. Uh, It's a alpha-emitting radioactive hazard, and you can breathe it into your lung, a single exposure, technically speaking, to alpha-emitting radioactivity can result in lung cancer. It may take decades because of the latency period, but it's a very hazardous exposure. And in that way, radon, because it's an alpha-emitter, has all too much in common with plutonium. And I mean, the difference is that radon is a naturally occurring radioactive material and plutonium only comes from reactors. And so it's artificially generated, but they share that alpha radiation emitting hazard. And uh, so radon is nothing to be messed with. In fact, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency reports that on an annual basis, because of human exposure to radon in places like basements, this again is naturally occurring radioactive material, that it is the second leading cause of lung cancer death in the United States after smoking. Radon's very serious.
0: Radon has a radioactive half-life of 3.8 days. And that would lead some people to believe, oh, well, it goes away pretty quickly. But it's my understanding that Half-life just means how long it takes for it to be half as potent as it was and that it takes something at this level of strength, approximately 10 half-life cycles before it becomes neutralized, before it goes flat, which would mean approximately 38 days that every bit of radon that's released is active in the environment. This could point to quite a significant ongoing and ever-growing Accumulation of radon since the leak started on October 23rd?
2: Well, there's a couple things I would say. One is, again, it's an artificial radioactive gas, but I think there's some lessons to be learned from it, and that's uh, iodine 131, which is reactor generated, and in catastrophes like Fukushima and Chernobyl, it escaped in very large quantities. Iodine-131 only has an eight-day half-life, and so you're talking times 10 or times 20 to be more conservative, 80 to 160 days of radioactive hazard, but in that short space of time, iodine-131 does tremendous damage to people who are exposed to it, whether they breathe it in or whether they consume it in dairy products, for example, because it falls on the grass, the cows eat the grass, it concentrates in the cow's milk. And then it attacks the human thyroid gland. So that's iodine-131 with a short eight-day half-life. So radon with a few days-long half-life, yeah, you're right. It's 30 to 60 days of radioactive hazard. But another important thing that is very significant is that the radon is continually resupplied. So radon is a part of the uranium decay chain. And the uranium is mixed in with the fossil fuel, the methane in this particular example. And so that radon is going to be constantly generated by the uranium contained in the methane that is breaking down radioactivity. So really you've got a chronic constant supply of hazardous radon gas coming out of this breach in California.
0: I've been reading about radon quite a bit today, and it seems that it attaches very readily to water, that it attaches to dust particles, and that these are some of the ways that it's spread, besides just hanging around in random basements of homes.
2: Yeah, and the same can be said of things like radium, which is uh, the source material, to my understanding, of radon in the uranium decay chain. It's highly water-soluble. And uh, depending on where it lands, you can drink it in, it could be incorporated as by irrigation into foods, uh, can be mixed in with dust where it is liberated into the air. So these naturally occurring radioactive materials, including things like polonium-210, will find their way into the ecosystem in very insidious ways.
0: What kind of regulations are there at the federal level regarding radon gas?
2: Incredibly enough, the federal government has largely washed its hands of regulating the radioactive hazards in fossil fuels. They've deferred that responsibility onto the states, which in their turn have largely not dealt with the issue. So in a very real sense, it is a regulation-free zone.
0: Do you have any knowledge as to how far radon can travel or is it a matter of it stays airborne and for 3.8 days at minimum up to 30 to 60 days, it can be wafted around on the winds and go however far the winds are blowing?
2: I think the latter. One hazard with radon, especially in basements or in uranium mines, for example, is that it's heavier than air. And so it's going to tend to hug the floor and build up, and people are going to be breathing it in in a concentrated fashion unless you ventilate those confined spaces. And that's the problem with basements and mines. So even if it is heavier than air, still the forces of nature, the power of the wind can push this stuff around. And just to give folks some idea of just the diabolical nature of this stuff, Dr. Gordon Edwards with the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility educated me to this fact that even the boreholes used to study geology for the potential of uranium mining act in a chimney effect kind of way with radon. So concentrated plumes of radon gas will escape these exploratory boreholes and disgorge significant amounts of hazardous radon. So even though it's heavier than air... Whatever convection currents exist, whatever wind forces exist will push this stuff downwind onto unsuspecting human and other forms of life. In addition to the gaseous releases from this methane breach, you've just got the entire extraction process from fracking, which is supplying the methane the solids, the liquids, the gasses coming out of fracking are being dumped for example in Ohio just willy-nilly in municipal garbage dumps and into water treatment plants. And so that background report I sent you showed that, you know, certainly the workers in the fracking industry, the workers in the water treatment plants, but the general public downwind and downstream are very much in harm's way.
0: If you lived In Southern California, in the San Fernando Valley, within, say, 20 miles of Porter Ranch right now, what would you be doing or what would you be thinking about doing?
2: Well, I've heard the comparison made to the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico uh, with this current methane leak. And now Senator Markey, the Democrat from Massachusetts, did in the BP disaster. He demanded that BP turn the cameras back on. They had cameras on the seafloor, They had turned them off. He demanded they be turned back on so that people could see this flood of oil that was leaking into the Gulf of Mexico. So full transparency from the powers that be, the state government, the federal government, the companies involved. First, the information needs to be known, and then the leak has to be stopped somehow. And massive public education about dirty, dangerous, and expensive forms of energy whether it be fossil fuels or nuclear power. We don't need to be living with not only these risks, but these catastrophes that keep seem to be happening at every turn. Renewables and efficiency are the future if we're going to have a future. And so we have to abolish both fossil fuel use and nuclear power use, both in terms of toxic chemicals and radioactivity.
0: And is there any way with this massive leak, Is there any way that you know of to put the genie back in the bottle to somehow mitigate the problems created not just by the methane but specifically the radon that has been released to remove it?
2: I really don't know what to say. I mean, again, indigenous people and their earth-based wisdom, they get their instructions straight from the creator. And what I've learned from... Navajo traditionals and Pueblo traditionals and Anishinaabe traditionals and others is leave it in the ground. And so we have to stop mining it and using it. These are the monsters that Navajo creation mythology spoke about, the oil and the gas and the coal and the uranium. You don't want to wake them up and bring them to the surface of the earth because they will wreak havoc, and they are. And so for what's already out, I don't know what to say, but... We certainly need to stop doing it, and maybe that's the only hope for the future, is to minimize the damage that we've already done and try to learn our lesson.
0: Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. Next, I talked with Cindy Falkers, Beyond Nuclear's expert on ionizing radiation and its impact on health and the environment. Note that when Cindy refers to the smoke from the leak at Porter Ranch, she's talking about the infrared video that was posted showing the otherwise invisible plume of gas billowing out from the site. The Porter Ranch gas leak disaster has been gathering a tremendous amount of media attention. But thus far, it has been focused on the methane of the leak. And if radioactive radon gas, which is also being released, is mentioned at all, it's part of just a list of other things that are
1: there. I'm absolutely astounded that they are not measuring for radon that I know of. Now, maybe they are and they're not releasing it to the public, But knowing what we know about natural gas production, drilling in the wells and the storage tanks and things like that, knowing that it can release radon, During these processes, I can't believe that they're not measuring for radon.
0: Porter Ranch, to my understanding, is not an active drill site, but it is a storage facility that takes the natural gas that comes from other sites that have released the gas through fracking.
1: The one thing that I did find through my research was that there's at least one well at Porter Ranch that I think has tapped a natural gas reserve that's under the earth. So it isn't clear to me exactly all of what is going on at that facility. It sounds like there are several different procedures, industrial procedures that might be going on.
0: Give us a grounding in what radon is and what it does to the body.
1: Radon is a radioactive gas. It has a half-life of about four days and that means that it can be hazardous for 10 to 20 times that amount. It decays by something called an alpha particle. It can be more difficult to detect than other radionuclides that give off, say, gamma because alpha particles are less penetrating. And when you combine that with radon's relatively short half-life, it can make it very difficult to detect. But it also decays to a number of what are called radon progeny which includes a number of short-lived radioactive substances, some of which are lead and polonium. Both of those can be very biologically damaging. Radon itself occurs naturally and seeps up through fractured rock and soil, collecting most of the time inside buildings. And the presence of radon varies depending on where you live, usually because of the kind of rock that's under that earth. Now, in the case of what's going on here, Clearly, there are gases and smoke that seems to be being released in a rather large amount. So I don't know how applicable it is as radon gathers itself in buildings. I don't know how applicable this would or would not be to what's going on because clearly these releases are to the open air. Having said that, it sounds like some people are having health effects from being in their houses around the site and from being in the area around the site outside of their dwellings as well. So there's question as to, you know, the kind of doses that they would be getting of radon, but it still is really very much a worry.
0: One of the things that has been happening, and this could be a little bit of a shell game misdirection, is that the gas company and the quote-unquote experts are all saying that there's no impact to health, where people have been reporting rashes and breathing problems, asthma attacks, bloody noses, so many of the symptoms that we do find in connection with exposure to radioactive materials.
1: Some rashes, nosebleeds, etc. Erythema, which is reddening of the skin, which is a type of rash. We do find with radioactive material exposure when the doses are higher, like you would expect from after a nuclear accident. I don't know that that is what is going on here, but what really has to happen is they need to be measuring. And if they can't measure the radon itself, then they need to be measuring the products that it decays to, which they can measure. So at the end of the decay chain for radon, you've got a radioactive lead, which is a radioactive lead-210 with a half-life of 22.3 years. So not only is it radioactive, it's lead. And we all know that lead is a heavy metal, and it is absolutely not good for anyone to be exposed to lead, but particularly children. So can I say for sure, 100%, that what these people are experiencing, their symptoms, indicate radioactive exposure. I don't have enough information to claim that, but I also know that these gases need to be measured. I don't believe that there's just methane. I believe that there's other particulate matter in there. And this is a problem, especially with radon gas, because when you look at the health effects from radon gas, they are compounded synergistically with cigarette smoke. What that means is you can smoke cigarettes and you have a certain risk. You can breathe radon gas and you can have a certain risk. But if you combine those two, the health impact will be greater than just adding the two effects from radon and cigarette smoke together. So it's a compounding of health effect. And the reason that happens is because the radon gas decay products like to attach themselves to dust and particulate in the cigarette smoke. Well, I see the pictures of the smoke coming out of the Porter site, and I'm saying to myself, there's dust and particulates in there, I'll bet you. And if there's radon and radon progeny in that dust, you don't even necessarily have to be breathing in the radon to have a problem. You can be breathing in that dust and get the decay products from radon, which you would normally not be breathing into your lungs. So that's the part of your body that is most affected. Some of it can leak out into the rest of the body through the lung tissue, etc. But breathing it in, it's giving you a lung dose. And that is what the problem is with radon.
0: From what you just said, a new piece of awareness came to me, and that is that even after the radon has decayed to the point where it is no longer active as radon, it still leaves behind a radioactive legacy, which is the lead in particular and also the polonium, which you mentioned. Is there any way to, without the measuring, figure out what the actual dose is that people are being exposed to in that area?
1: You would have to measure either the radon or one of its daughter products in order to know exactly what the dose might be. You might also be able to measure the natural gas underground before it has leaked out. There might be records of what it contained before it came to this site. You know, there are probably ways to go about this. I'm just sort of talking off the top of my head when it comes to how one would go about sort of reconstructing what these doses, if there are doses from radon, what the doses might be. But we really need to know. (laughs) We really need to measure. And it's not just radon. We need to measure, of course, for other pollutants and dust particulates, et cetera, as well. The company owes the people around this site not just evacuation, not just paying their hotel rooms. They owe them the knowledge of what it was that they've been exposed to, including if it was radon. And I don't see any indication that they've measured any of these things.
0: What, if any, ways do you know of that an individual
1: can protect themselves from radon? See, this kind of radon exposure sort of in the open air like this is kind of untested in a way, to my knowledge, because EPA has focused its action level, which is four picocuries per liter, as I said before. By the way, the World Health Organization says the radon reference level should be 2.7 picocuries per liter. So they're lower than EPA, just FYI on that. But the EPA tries to mitigate radon exposure within buildings, And so the way they do that is you get something installed on the side of your house. It's a pump. It takes the gas from under your foundation of whatever the building is, and it pumps it out and up into the air so that the radon gas dissipates and floats away above where people breathe it. How you deal with that at a site like this is probably substantially different. You know, it sounds to me like you've got to have a respirator attached to some sort of air cleaning device that might catch it. But I don't know. That's not where my area of expertise is in this kind of exposure scenario where you could be outside and be getting exposed to a lot of it outside. Now, these people live in homes. Clearly, it sounds like it might be seeping into their homes. This whatever is in this gas that has come out of this facility, if it's seeping into their house and they've got radon mitigation, that would be a help. But I don't know what the people in this subdivision have in their houses for radon mitigation naturally. They might not have anything. It might not be a problem in their area naturally. It might be that it was sort of, if you will, an imported problem, which is another point that I want to make. The radon in natural gas that comes out of the earth is what I call naturally occurring, but it is artificially available. You have radon that escapes from the earth naturally, and that's one piece of it. But when you disturb the surface of the earth like you do for natural gas drilling of any type, you run the risk of pulling up more radon than would naturally be released and either having it release itself through other means through the soil or in big, huge gas plumes. And so that really is not natural anymore. It is what I said before, naturally occurring, artificially Available.
0: What about contamination of food and water? Radon does have a relatively short half-life, but still, it can travel great distances. And there are agricultural fields, there are mountain wildernesses around this area. What can happen when the radon comes in contact with green growing things and the water that we drink?
1: So there's not a lot of biological information about what happens when people ingest radon in water. What might be a concern in those kinds of scenarios, especially for growing scenarios, depending on the time of harvesting your crop, could be the radon progeny. So that would be lead. That would be polonium. And you know some of these are radioactive. And so what ends up happening is you would have to look at, how lead interacts with the body as a chemical. The fact that it's radioactive is an additional problem, but it's not going to tell you what's going on chemically. So you've got chemical lead, you've got chemical polonium, and we all know what lead does, especially for children. And polonium is also very damaging when it gets into your body, but it is most damaging to the lung, and it imparts a dose of radioactivity. So these questions are very good questions, Without measuring, you're not going to know this. And this is why we really need to have that company or at this point, frankly, an independent third party measure what's going on there. Because I feel like doing the research that I've done, we are not getting the full story of what's happened there.
0: Then Cindy threw
1: me a curveball, which I tried to correct, but it turns out she may be right. To my mind, the public there is owed some answers. And they're owed those answers months ago. I mean, this started in the summer. as far no, 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 no,
0: no. no. It started in October. October 23rd was the start of the leak.
1: Okay, so this started many months ago, this leak. And so really, as soon as it started, they should have been aware of it. So they are really behind the eight ball on this one. Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear.
0: As you heard, I was a little shocked that Cindy set the timeline for the leak at Porter Ranch back to last summer. But after the interview, she sent me links to two articles, one from August 15th of 2015 and an earlier report from July of 2014, where residents of Porter Ranch reported nosebleeds and other health problems and demanded answers, which they never got. As Cindy pointed out, These may have been early indications that the leak far predates the blowout that started on October 23rd. We'll have links on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 238. Two more interviews you're not going to miss are coming up. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat is here, every week, and we have been for four and a half years, covering aspects of the nuclear issues that just don't get touched upon by mainstream media We use verifiable sources, journalistic standards, genuine experts with an international perspective, and yes, even a sense of humor. So help us out here. If you're a regular listener in one of the 59 countries we know download the show on a monthly basis, or new to Nuclear Hot Seat because you want to know more about this particular nuclear issue, help us keep doing the work with a donation. We make it easy for you to donate by going to nuclearhotseat.com where you can click on the big red donate button. You can donate either through PayPal or directly from your credit or debit card. And if you prefer not to donate online, email us at info at nuclearhotseat.com for a snail mail address where you can send a donation the old-fashioned way. Whatever you can do to help, you've got our gratitude. Richard Matthews is a longtime resident of the Porter Ranch area who is currently running for state assembly from that district. His background includes working in astrophysics at Caltech, and his work currently involves making the connections between physics and politics when it comes to alternative energy. He lives four miles from the gas leak. Let's start out with a sense of your background.
3: I'm currently a candidate for state senate in the Porter Ranch area and throughout the West San Fernando Valley, but I started off way back in uh, astrophysics at Caltech and then went into a career in computer engineering, designing computer components and software, and I want to be using that science and engineering experience so that we base policy in Sacramento on good sound science. My political background, I've been active my whole life, going way back to uh, marching for Cesar Chavez to boycott grapes. I've been regional vice chair of the Los Angeles County Democratic Party. I wrote the state party platform language that calls for completely phasing out all nuclear power. So I've been active up and down through the Democratic
0: Party for many years. And bless you for it. Now, you also live very close to Porter Ranch and the gas leak. What has been your awareness of it and how has this been impacting you?
3: I've been involved in fighting the leak since the first day that we were smelling it. We have a group called Save Porter Ranch, which was actually first created to deal with the fracking that has been happening on the property next to this one, and so we were all ready and organized to go uh, as soon as we heard about this. And so we've been fighting this since late October.
0: What has the fighting consisted of? How have you been working on the political angle of this?
3: We've been organizing protests and informational meetings. Uh, We've had hundreds of people out to many of our protests. And on the informational meetings, we've had uh, as many as 2,000 people coming to these events.
0: What has been the tone of the feedback that you've gotten from these 2,000 people at the events?
3: People are really concerned about this. People are seriously getting sick. We have now had, I believe it's about 3,000 families that have been pushed out of their homes. Another couple thousand families are on waiting lists to get relocation funds so that they can move away. Others who don't feel they're able to move are trying to get air purifiers, and there are waiting lists for that. And so thousands of people are getting sick from this, and it really is a major, major disaster.
0: We hear all the time about this being a methane leak, but then there's a list of other things that seem to be mentioned but not gone into, one of them being radon. And radon is a radioactive gas that then decays into other radioactive materials. How concerned have you and the others been about the radon aspect of this problem?
3: There is a lot of concern about this. We don't really have good numbers on how much radon there is. It is possible for people to go out and buy radon detectors. I I recommend doing that. And if you get test results, I would appreciate you letting me know, positive or negative, what you find. That's not as good as having a controlled scientific study on how much radon there is out there. But when there's no data at all, anything we can get would really help. The radon is heavier than air. With the natural gas... Most of it is methane, which is lighter than air, and so the methane floats away and spreads around the whole world and creates global problems for climate. But all of the contaminants that are in with the methane are heavier than air, and that includes methylmercaptan, which is what they add to make the gas smell. It includes benzene and toluene. Uh, Hydrogen sulfide, all of those are heavier than air. They tend to stay close to the ground and move downhill. This is happening in the hill above the San Fernando Valley, and so the the poisons are all moving down into the San Fernando Valley and spreading through the entire San Fernando Valley. We are hearing about people who are smelling this 10 miles away in Woodland Hills, in Reseda, in San Fernando. I've even heard about it going in the opposite direction up to Santa Clarita. I heard one report, uh, I'm still considering this unconfirmed, but in a way it does make sense because of the directions the gas would follow the canyons. Uh, I've heard one report from Camarillo, which is uh, quite far away. As the radon and other heavy substances flow around, they are accumulating. They are not easily being blown out of the valley, and we're getting higher and higher levels. Radon has a half-life that means it'll stick around only for a few days. And the greatest risk from radon is if you get it into your lungs and it decays while it is inside your lungs.
0: I need to correct something that you just said because my other interviewees on this program also spoke to the fact that when we say half-life and the half-life of radon is 3.8 days, that's just how long it takes for it to become half as potent, half as powerful as it was to begin with. It doesn't mean that the risk is gone. And in order for it to decay into non-radon, it will take anywhere from 10 to 20 half-life cycles, meaning anywhere from 38 to 86 days. Then what it decays into is radioactive lead and polonium, which is also a radioactive material, Lead has a half-life of over 22 years. So we're not talking about just because it's 3.8 days. It creates an image that it's going to go away quickly, but actually it's not, and it continues to accumulate. Were you aware of this?
3: Yes, actually, I I was about to be going into uh, much of the same discussion. The radon will be around for a matter of days, and and yes, that could be up to uh, 30 days, 60 days, while the lead is going to be around for decades. And the lead creates a problem both from lead poisoning affecting the nervous system and the fact that the initial lead that you get is radioactive. This will be a continuing problem. But as far as the poison spreading, it really only spreads while it is in radon form because that's a gas and it easily moves. Once it turns into lead, it's going to settle down on a surface and then it's just like the problems we have with lead paint and things like that, that uh, it's going to be a a stationary problem. So the, the radon is going to tend to be a problem fairly close in to the site because it doesn't have the opportunity to spread as much as gases. That don't decay. The greatest concern for the radon is to the workers who are right at the site. And the next level of concern is for the residents who are closest to the site. But it could spread through the entire San Fernando Valley. And it would be very useful if people would uh, get radon testers and we would get numbers scattered from around the valley as the county health department and the air quality management district have been doing testing they have mostly been doing sampling of air outdoors and we don't have nearly as much data about what kinds of problems might be uh, happening indoors we know we are seeing places where inside one house there is a significant amount of smell in that one house, but the house next door, we don't smell nearly as much or maybe nothing at all. So these gases can accumulate inside a particular house, and so getting more testing indoors would be uh, very helpful so that we would know what the risks really are.
0: There's a model for this in North St. Louis, where they've been dealing with horrific contamination left over from World War II era waste that's been illegally buried on site there. Without going into a lot of details, though, what I think would be important is to know that they started their own epidemiological study by sending out a survey. I think they just used SurveyMonkey to gather numbers on cancer cases and other illnesses. And this might be a model that you could take for the in gathering of any kind of radon information Information, that if you had a Facebook page that was dedicated to it so that people could post there, and perhaps there was a questionnaire that they could fill out, you could start having some kind of a coordinated ingathering of that information as opposed to scattershot one here, one there, and people not understanding the patterns that are showing up.
3: Absolutely. It's much better if you can do systematic surveys, and uh, with the governor's proclamation of a state emergency the other day, the state is going to be looking at doing long-term studies where they take particular people in the area and follow them through the decades, because these radon effects are not going to show up as health problems Right away, the effects from radon and from some of these other chemical problems that we have like benzene, these are lifetime cumulative risks. The damage that the radon does stays in your body, even though the radon is gone in a matter of days. That damage sticks around and it adds to whatever other accumulated risks you have had from x-rays or from other things uh, through your life and uh, shows up as cancer a decade later, maybe even 80 years later. So we really need to follow through. We also, in, in this same area, we have the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, which was the site of a nuclear power meltdown in 1959 and other dumping of radioactive waste and, and terrible handling of materials there. Terrible pollution problem. And in all these decades, we still haven't cleaned that up. And uh, we have a cancer cluster that comes from that. And now we're going to be having finger-pointing as uh, Boeing, which is one of the polluters at Santa Susana, and here's Southern California Gas Company, are going to be pointing fingers at each other and saying, oh, we didn't cause these cancers, the other guy did. And so being able to follow people through the decades uh, will be very helpful to be able to tie the situations to uh, the particular problems.
0: What else can you tell us about the political situation, the political connections to this horrific leak?
3: There is a lot going on on the political side. As I mentioned, the governor just declared a state emergency, and that will bring a lot of good resources into this process. The legislature is working to uh, codify The governor's proclamation, turn it into law, which makes it stronger, but we really want to go even beyond what the governor declared. So we will need additional legislation to try to eventually shut this site down for good. I have a petition that I have just started, and you can find that petition at voterichard.org. And that is calling on the president to declare this to be a national disaster area. And what that will do is it will bring residents tax deductions, mortgage relief, and federal resources that will help protect health. Getting that presidential declaration will be very helpful. So please go to VoteRichard.org and uh, sign
0: that petition. We will also take that link and put it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 238. Richard, on the personal side, you and other family members live near the leak. How is this personally impacting your family?
3: Well, my mother is 88 years old. Uh, she is still very politically active. She was at the Air Quality Management District meeting just the other day testifying about the problems that she has been having. And the health problems from these chemicals tend to be things that affect the young and the elderly more significantly as well as people like me who have asthma. And so she has been feeling headaches and nausea and the various things that other people in the area have been feeling and she feels she's too old to be able to relocate to somewhere else she, she wants to stay close to her doctors and things like that so we are looking at getting air purifiers and the air purifiers are on back order hopefully we can get that soon but a lot of people are in this same kind of situation of, of feeling sick and feeling trapped
0: if we were to help get this thing shut down what steps would you like us to take
3: Well, the the natural gas at this facility, this is a storage facility. Almost all of the natural gas in California comes from other states, from Texas, from the Midwest, from Canada, and uh, that is fracked natural gas. We store it here so that on days that we bring in More gas than we are able to use. The excess is stored down underground in what used to be an oil field. And then uh, on other days when we use more than we can pipe in, we use up that gas. Anything we can do to reduce our usage of natural gas will get us to where we are able to shut down this facility, that we won't need the extra capacity that it provides. And so we need to be really working on making sure that we have solar power on every rooftop. And with that, we need to combine it with incentives so that when people put in solar, they also exchange their natural gas appliances for electric appliances. And if we have all of those electric appliances running off of solar power, we are using less natural gas, in the power plants, and we are using less natural gas in the homes, and that will get us to where we don't need to have this facility, and we can shut the whole thing down.
0: Richard Matthews, who is running for state representative from the Porter Ranch District. We will have a link posted to Richard's petition to make Porter Ranch a federal emergency zone. It will be up on our website, website nuclearnuclearhotsy.com. To learn more about the radiation fracking connection, and how it may be playing out at Porter Ranch, I talked with Terry Lodge, an Ohio trial attorney who has represented many clients in civil rights, civil liberties, and environmental cases. As an advocate for the public interest in energy policy issues, he has litigated nuclear power safety and environmental issues for 40 years. Terry Lodge, thanks so much for being available today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Happy to be on. Start out with The Connection between fracking and radon and other radioactive substances?
4: Fracking requires very deep drilling for oil and gas. Fracking wells can be literally uh, 8, 10, 12, 14,000 feet deep. But basically, a vertical well shaft is created, and then at some point, you turn laterally into the layers of shale, which tend to be roughly parallel with the surface of the earth when you're drilling that deep into the earth and fracking wells tend to be considerably deeper than conventional old-fashioned vertical ones you're invariably getting into the primordial crust of the earth which is laden with many heavy metals and also radioactive isotopes of various sorts. Thorium-232, radium-228, radium-226, radium-222, all of these are naturally occurring radioactive isotopic substances. There's also uh, shorter-lived, by way of half-life, elements like polonium-210 and, of course, uranium in various naturally occurring uranium daughters. The problem is that this material was literally separated, segregated from the surface of the earth over hundreds of millions of years, and it was only by virtue of that that life could form. So that's the the deep background. So the problem is is that in mining and in mineral exploitation like drilling, you're pulling up from very deep in the earth's surface in the crust, you're pulling up. Natural but dangerous radioactive substances. Inherent in shale is a lot of radium and thorium in particular as well as uranium. So problem becomes you drill into this. When you are drilling a well, you're using sort of an auger technique that pulls all of this stuff, drill cuttings, they call it, up to the surface. So you may be five or six or 10,000 feet below ground pulling up a lot of material. The problem is fracking requires the injection of chemicals into shale, and it breaks up the shale and crumbles it and all that, and you draw gas and oil up through pipes. But the problem is that chemically, the drilling operators look for the hottest, most radioactive shale, which is the most productive from an oil and gas standpoint. So it means that inevitably there is a great deal of naturally occurring radioactive material that is in play when fracking's going on. Fracked gas contains lots of radon. Probably a fair amount of particulate comes along in the form of radium-226 and 228. Radium-226 has a half-life of 1,600 years. In practical terms, that means it takes over 8,000 years for radium-226 to decay down to a safe background sort of level. So we're talking about long-lived stuff that killed Madame Curie and her laboratory staff.
0: How does that or how might that be implicating the methane storage that is taking place and leaking so profusely (coughs) from Porter Ranch in California?
4: The Porter Ranch situation, as I understand it, is a large storage of probably a mix of conventionally tapped gas, which is pretty seriously depleting even in the Southwest, and a lot of fracked gas. And the problem is, is that while there is some ability for some separation of the radioactive elements to occur, I'm not sure whether that scrubbing is done before it goes into the Porter Ranch storage facility. I suspect not. I suspect that's just a a huge gathering place. And even if it were, incidentally, you can't get rid of all of the radon. The radon thing is a product of decaying uranium. It is pretty stable. It's not as though it um, decays very rapidly at all. And it's not destroyed when natural gas is burned. So it certainly isn't being destroyed when it's simply being vented. So you have a massive release probably of radon going on. And there may actually also be radium particulate. Radium came into some notoriety in the uh, early to mid-1980s when it was finally scientifically acknowledged that it inheres in a lot of foundation materials that become concrete or foundation stone, that sort of thing. And that was when we first saw the marketing of radiation detectors in homes, which were actually to detect the levels of radon. It's ubiquitous. Radon is everywhere. It's like radiation is everywhere in the soil, but it's the level that can kill you. The so-called harmless background levels which may be relatively benign, kind of set the baseline. Radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer in the country. It is believed to be involved with uh, somewhere in the vicinity of about twenty-eight to 32,000 deaths a year. The number one cause, of course, remains smoking. But interestingly, one of the active ingredients in tobacco, which is widely uh, believed by the medical profession to trigger lung cancer, is radium-226. So we're talking about a significant problem from naturally occurring radium and uranium, and that is kind of because of the nature of fracking, and as I say, the the fact that the drillers seek the hottest areas of the shale for the highest, biggest bang for the buck.
0: Now, I have found from other interviews that I did for this program that there really is no data available on what the radon levels are or were around Porter Ranch. If those statistics do exist, they have not been made available. Given this lack of information, if you found yourself living in the Porter Ranch area, what steps would you be taking now to protect yourself?
4: I'd be taking very rapid steps. I'd be running like hell. And, and the reason is that I suspect that there's little by way of emergency anticipation. You know, what could possibly go wrong? We have this vast underground storage facility, and it's geological, and so what? There are not obligatory, as I understand it. There are not radiation monitors. It just isn't done. So the problem is sort of the Three Mile Island problem. The thing with Three Mile Island was that there were the radiation emissions went way off the meter, so far as we suspect or know, but there were no redundant rings. There was no monitoring certain distances uh, outside of the plant boundary. You don't even have that at Porter. And so, once again, is um, everybody's fault and nobody's fault. They don't know how much radon content there was, probably, and they don't know how much radon is being dispersed. However, radon is approximately – I'm thinking it's roughly the same atomic weight as oxygen, and so it can be concentrated by rainfall, concentrated by humidity and inversions and that sort of thing. So there needs to be some type of soil sampling, uh, possibly grab samples of the air and all that. The thing is, is that this calculated ignorance is what the oil and gas industry – actively seeks to have they don't want discussion of radiation because that's a real mind deadening kind of problem it makes fracking kind of conjures up a lot of other things radioactive in our society and so there are very there's relatively little science although the scientific juried and peer-reviewed analyses that are starting to come out are very damning as predicted so the problem is that radon is around in in the Porter Ranch situation. Nobody was prepared for it, and they're not talking about it now, this many months into this crisis.
0: They will mention it in a list of other contaminants, but nobody has focused in on it as a source of radiation and radiologic contamination.
4: My perception is that there is such contrived ignorance about this stuff that if people began to widely understand what they are taking on, I think there would be a very serious reaction. These are not trivial health problems that can arise, and public officialdom is largely silent, if not ignorant, of the risks, and the drilling industry is not about to fess off. I think that there's going to be some unfortunate consequences from all this, but boy, what an illustration... When suddenly the largest methane emitter in your state is just pumping it out invisibly at, you know, the rates of, what, hundreds of thousands of gallons per hour? I mean, my God.
0: nonstop just... since October 23rd. And yep. here we are at January 12th. And they still think it's going to be a minimum of two to three months before they can maybe get it under control. Boy, that was Ohio trial attorney Terry Lodge. Terry had so much information to share that I have invited him back in a few weeks so we can do a more thorough and extensive interview on the fracking radiation connection as well as how it is playing out at Porter Ranch. Activist shout-out! Last week on Nuclear Hot Seat number 237, I interviewed North St. Louis resident and political candidate, interesting connection there, Byron Delier on the legalities concerning illegal dumping of radioactive waste from the Manhattan Project at the Westlake Landfill. Included in that interview were some great legal strategies that can be taken to fight back against the political and legal gridlock regarding this toxic site and perhaps others. There is now a transcript of that interview, thanks to the expertise, motivation, and long hours spent by Nuclear Hot Seat listener David Parker who transcribed the interview and then had it vetted by Byron DeLeer for accuracy. You can find the PDF posted under this week's Nuclear Hot Seat, number 238, and also under last week's, which also has the audio interview with Byron. Now, there are 11 law schools listed by Google in the greater St. Louis area. Who wants to take on a class project for extra credit and support some class action suits? Here's today's final thought. I really hate finding myself in proximity to nuclear disasters. Three Mile Island, Santa Susana Field Lab, now Porter Ranch. You do not want me choosing your vacation destination or your real estate investments. I will continue to cover the radioactivity connection to Porter Ranch, as well as my research into best practices to help safeguard your health from radiation exposure. For now, two important things for you to know. The Environmental Protection Agency, the Surgeon General, the American Lung Association, American Medical Association, and National Safety Council all recommend testing your home for radon because testing is the only way to know your home's radon levels. And, in a case of total irony, January is the EPA's National Radon Action Month. No time like the present to take radon action, Southern California Gas Company. Measure the radon and then release your findings immediately. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 12, 2016. Thanks to all of my guests and my deep appreciation for the ingathering of news on the radon connection at Porter Ranch to the folks at enenews.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV, on StuWebRadioNetwork.com, which is formerly the Veterans Truth Network, in New Zealand by NewZSentinel.com, and at ActivateMedia.org. You can also find us on iTunes under Podcasts, and our archive is available on the website on our YouTube channel under Nuclear Hot Seat Videos, and on iTunes. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2016, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed for -for not-for-profit entities as long as you give us proper attribution. If you're for-profit, shoot us an email. We're reasonable when it comes to rates. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all, each and every one of us, in the Nuclear Hot Seat. Nuclear Hot Seat <laughs>
1: It's the bomb.